Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book By Searching by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 11, Graduation and CMI Candidature. I was elected girl class speaker for graduation exercises in December 1926. I prayed for a message, taking as my theme the print of the nails, based on Thomas's words in John 20:25. 20, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. I made it representative of what the unbelieving world is unconsciously saying to the Christian church today. The unbelievers around us have not much respect or interest in a smug, ordinary Christianity. If it costs you nothing, what proof have you that it has any value? Is their indifferent, shrugging attitude? But when they see in any life the print of the nails, they are challenged. And like Thomas of old, if they can be made to see him at that moment, they will fall down and cry, My Lord, my God. I felt this message deeply and wanted it to speak to other hearts as it had to my own. The valedictorian messages had to be written out, checked for doctrine and grammar, and be memorized by the speaker. This bothered me a little. I didn't mind memorizing the speech, but I had never been able to pour out my heart was given the freedom of spontaneous speaking. I did not know this at that time, for I had done comparatively little public speaking. All I knew was that I felt hampered somehow on reciting a memorized text. But rules were rules, and I fell in line, as I tried to do throughout my school days. My father came to Chicago for my graduation, and Miss Bull sent me a white silk dress. She and I did not correspond. In fact, apart from the $200 gift at the beginning of the year, I had heard nothing from her. Certainly no one was told I had no money to buy the required white dress for graduation. Remember, I had lost my employment at Mrs. Max. Moreover, in those days, Moody Bible Institute required that the girls' student clothing had to be have sleeves below the elbow and skirts nine inches from the floor. The 1926 styles were worn shorter than that. Yet when Miss Ruby Jackson, Register of the Faculty, measured the gift dress, it fulfilled all the requirements and did not have to be altered at all. Miss Bowles' gifts to me ended here. I have never heard from her since. As we went up to the platform, on sudden impulse, I gave the text of my message to Ann Barr, our vice president, just in case I got stage fright and needed prompting. I had recited the whole thing more than once before our speech instructor, so it was not that I did not know it. When my name was called, I went forward and faced that big audience. I did not feel as nervous as I expected to and started in easily. But as I proceeded, I felt that I was merely reciting and not pouring out my soul. I felt the message was not going into the hearts of the audience. In my anxiety to give it the meaning it had for me, I forgot how the next paragraph started. Only for a second, however, behind me, Anne prompted quickly in a low voice that not everyone heard. But to me, it was catastrophic. I got through the message and went to my seat, hung my head, and waited until the end of the program when I would be free to dash off from my room. During the last term, I had a room to myself. Once up there, I fell on my knees in the agony of humiliation and failure. Through the heavy city atmosphere, a pale December sun shone weakly on me. Then suddenly, the Lord was there in the room. I felt his love folding me around. Never mind, dear, he was saying. Failure or success, it is all over now, and my love is just the same. The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. Deuteronomy 33:12. The words came to me as if spoken, and the tenderness that engulfed me 
was as the balm of Gilead to my agonized soul. Slowly I quieted, relaxed, and rested back on him, and drank deeply of his love. It was a wonderful experience, and I was lifted up in spirit, so I no longer cared about any personal humiliation. I was deeply sorry to have disappointed the expectation of my class, but apart from that, I was beyond hurt. I have never forgotten the outpouring of God's love upon me that day when I felt such a failure. After graduation came the Canada tour of the China Inland Mission in Toronto. The 1926 candidates class had been held in August. Catherine Kuhn and her brother John, with many others, had been accepted. The party sailed for China in October. I was the only candidate applying in midwinter. As I would be leaving from my home in the, on the Pacific coast, and the mission decided that I should come to Toronto immediately after graduation. Toronto being the place of my birth, we had relatives and friends there with whom my father stayed, waiting until he and I could travel west together. Daddy Page came to the train to see us off. I do not know whether I was looking anxious or sad or just plain tired, but suddenly a tender compassion lit up his face. He leaned forward. Don't be afraid, Isabel, he said. There's nothing to be to dread in Canada school. The CIM has known you from a child. I thanked him for this good cheer and for all his loving fatherly care for me during the Institute days. Then the train pulled out. The Reverend and Mrs. E. A. Brownlee were in charge of the Toronto Mission Home, but Mr. Roy Seaman was the one appointed to start me on the Chinese language study. The Seamans were on furlough and staying at the home. Candidates learned to recognize the difficult radicals, which roughly correspond to the English alphabet and other simple beginnings. I was also to help and act as a companion to the widow of one of the mission's donors, whose bereavement had made her distraught. Her family felt the quiet, prayerful atmosphere of the CIM home might benefit her. Dana, son of Mr. and Mrs. Brownlee, lived in the home. The only other young person I remember was Miss Ida McGinn's. I had met Ida and Moody. She had organized Daddy Page's surprise birthday party and introduced me to John, and I had learned to love her. She had graduated earlier and had applied for the China Inland Mission, but did not pass the medical examination. With China close to her, she became the office worker for the missions to lepers, but was allowed to stay on at the CIM home until she could find a boarding house elsewhere. Ida was the embroidery of my candidate days. She was devoted to the Lord, and we were one in the things of the Spirit. Her keen sense of humor was a safety valve for my youthful spirits. Quick, impulsive, and daydreaming, I had been an easy prey to faux pas all my life. I was not in the home 24 hours before I made my first one. Knowing the Brownlee's reputation for perfect ministration, I was sure the fault was mine, but I did not know the daily schedule. Most likely, they had told me why I was daydreaming. Conscious that this was more than probable, I felt shy to ask what the hours were and decided to watch carefully the bells which summoned the household to meals and meetings. I got along well the first morning, but half past one in the afternoon, I was startled by the clang of a bell. What did that call me to? I rushed to Ida's room, but she was out. A girl was dusting in the corridor, so I asked her, What was the bell for? She looked at me wonderingly and announced, It's the prayer meeting bell. A prayer meeting? And the candidate not attending? That would look bad. Sorry, I said hastily. I'm new here. Which room is it? She told me, indicating the office buildings, and I rushed over. The door was shut, but a murmur of voices within settled it for me. I knocked gently and opened the door. In my excitement, I did not notice that the only that only the staff were present. Excuse me for being late, I murmured and sank into a seat. They received me politely, howbeit a little blankly, 
That And that day, the staff prayers were very general. After the meeting, Mrs. Brownlee came and told me gently that the half-past-one meeting was for the staff only and that my presence would not be required. Ida laughed when I told her, and they probably discussed you at that meeting, she teased, and from then on there were many pointed remarks as to when my presence was required and when it wasn't. We had hilarious times in her room. I was in Toronto some three or four weeks before being called to meet the council. That is a formidable occasion, and I was nervous, as I was not quick at thinking on my feet. I always do better with preparation and time to consider the best answer. The meeting came and went, however. That evening after supper, I was called into the sitting room by Mr. Brown to hear the verdict. He said something like this. The council was quite satisfied with your answers today, and we in the home have enjoyed your presence. But the council has asked me to speak to you upon a very serious matter. Among your references, there was one who did not recommend you. The reason given was that you are proud, disobedient, and likely to be a troublemaker. This person has known you for some years, and the council felt that they could not ignore this criticism. Who was it, I asked quickly, simply dumbfounded? The CIM does not betray the confidence of references. We write to those who have had business associations with you, as well as the references you yourself give, and we promise to keep all reports in confidence. I cannot tell you the name, but I would like to discuss with you what havoc such characteristics can cause on the field. Then he proceeded to do so. At the end of an hour of earnest exhortation, he pronounced the verdict. The council decided to accept you conditionally. There is an anti-foreign uprising in China just now, which is very serious, and we dare not send out any new candidates. That will be our public statement on this matter. For yourself alone, and we hope you will not spread it around. During your waiting period, the Vancouver Council will watch to see if there's any of these characteristics show themselves. If you prove that you have conquered them, you will then meet with the Western Council and be accepted fully and sent out with the first party that goes. As we anticipate your victory in these matters, it was voted to pay your train fare to Vancouver as en route for China. I can assure you I have not found it easy to say these things. Indeed, his face was sad and tired, and I felt sorry for him, even with the misery that was numbing my own heart. I went up to bed, but as you can readily believe, not to sleep. Who would be the unknown reference? Proud, disobedient, a troublemaker? This was the third time the adjective proud had been attached to me. The first time was by Daddy Page months before. He had read me an anxious lecture on the subject to my extreme surprise. Pride was one of the human frailties of which I felt I was not guilty. I would have taken Daddy Page's lecture to heart if he had not ended it by holding up to me as one example to emulate, a certain fellow student. That particular student stood high in the regard of the staff, but I happened to room near her, and I knew that secretly she broke many institute rules. She also lied about her age to her boyfriends and so on. I was sure that if Dr. Page knew what I knew, he would never have held her up as a pattern of conduct. So I concluded that he did not know either of us and brushed the accusation aside. China was later to be a painful revelation to me of my own heart and frailty. From this distance, I now know that Dr. Page had indeed sensed a real flaw in my life, but had hold of the wrong label, that was all. I was selfish. I had whimsically divided the world into two classes, people who interested me and people who did not. I felt I was not proud, because the people who interested me were often among the poor or the uneducated. My friendship for them was as warm as those who had social or educational advantages. Towards people who did not interest me, I must have appeared proud. I cold-shouldered them and brushed them off as time-wasters. 
This, of course, was a serious flaw for a missionary, but I fancy its basis was selfish rather than pride. The next point was disobedience. How I did get indignant. There were many rules at Moody Bible Institute, which were difficult to keep. The rules have been revised since, and it is no longer so. But I had been meticulous in obeying simply because I had signed a promise to do so. I felt honor-bound to keep that promise. In the little matter of laundry, for instance, we had washbowls in our rooms, but their use for laundry was forbidden. To rinse a pair of stockings a day was allowed, no more. There was no laundry room in Ransom Hall, so I had to waste many weary steps going into another dormitory to do my laundry and waste more precious minutes because I required each time to get permission from the matron to do so. And I could not always find the matron. This was my most galling trial. The girl who had been held up to me as an example washed all her lingerie and, and sometimes even night clothes right in her own bedroom at hours when she knew the inspectors would be busy elsewhere and dry them on a radiator. The rule is unreasonable was her only answer when I remarked on it, but I had promised to obey, so I dragged my weary self over to the other building every week, and now the CIM had told me I was disobedient. I had been told not to spread around the second condition of my acceptance by the mission, but I did write a few friends. They wrote back quickly and indignant and sympathetic, and I was somewhat mollified. All except one. Roy Bancroft was a music student with a beautiful baritone voice and a consecrated heart. We had invited Roy out to St. Charles Reformatory to sing to the boys and help deal with them. I happened to be writing to him those days and impulsively told him. A letter came back quickly and I opened it with a smile of anticipation, thinking Roy too would be indignant on my behalf. I got a shock. Isabel, he wrote, what surprised me most of all was your attitude in this matter. You sound bitter and resentful. Why, if anyone had said to me, Roy B., you're proud, disobedient, and a troublemaker, I would have answered, Amen, brother. And even then, you haven't said the half of it. What good thing is there in any of us anyway? We have victory over these things only as we bring them one by one to the cross and ask our Lord to crucify it for us. Those words stabbed my spirit broad awake. Faithful friend he was, not afraid to season his words with salt, even as he did not forget to speak with grace also. I was on my knees in no time, asking the Lord to forgive me. I rose from my knees with a different attitude. Instead of resentment, there was alertness to watch and see if these three, pride, disobedience, and rebellion, were there lurking in my camp. The town of Mansoul should not protect them if detected. This brought me into peace, even though I always shrank from the memory that I was to be watched for their appearance in my life. We'll read the rest of this chapter next time. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.